0: you will, please, in your minds, let's go back to the year 1732. Can you do that? 1732, about 40 years or so uh, before the Great American Revolution, and our country became a nation. Now, in your mind, in 1732, the best you can, let's go to the country in Europe of Germany. And we're in Germany, and there in the middle of Germany is a small community called called Herrenhut. In Herrenhut, there is a Moravian group of believers, Protestant believers. You can check with Gabi DeVries later on the proper way to say (laughs) Herrenhut. That's how I say it. (laughs) A little community in the heart of Germany and there this Moravian community has grown up, and in that community there are two young men. One of them's name is, we would call him John Dober, Johann jo- Dober, and the other is a young man named David Nitschman. John Dober and David Nitschman began to hear among the Moravian community of reports from the islands of the West Indies, and that would be the area that we know today of, the St. Thomas and St. Croix, there in those islands, there were huge plantations, largely sugarcane, and on those plantations, they were staffed brutally by African slaves. 1732, a Moravian community in Herrenhut, Germany, two young men, John and David. Reports of African slavery and abuses on the sugarcane fields of St. Thomas and St. Croix in the West Indies. One report came back that the plantation owner of this particular island that had over 3,000 African slaves working in his fields, one report was that he had proclaimed that no preacher man or clergyman would ever be allowed to stay on his island. In fact, he said, if he were to be shipwrecked, we will keep him in a separate house until he has to leave, and he's never going to talk to any of us about God. He said, I am through with all of that nonsense. Interestingly enough, Johann and David became so burdened for the African slaves there that they committed their lives to sharing the gospel with them by doing this. They got on a ship, and they said farewell to their loved ones, And they sailed to the West Indies, and there it was their intention to join the slaves as fellow slaves. They would give up their lives to become slaves, live among them as long as God gave them strength and life, and there they would share the love of Christ with them. There are mixed reports as to the outcomes. It's my understanding that they were not actually allowed to become slaves, but they had skill in carpentry, and the plantation owner allowed them to stay on as staff carpenters. They then began some of the early work of the missionary movement started by the Moravians, are famous for that. Now, you just stop and think about it. You're a young man. You're so compelled by the gospel that you're willing to go ...on a ship to a faraway land, and you are willing to literally give up your freedom to live in a slave hut among slaves, become a slave, to share Christ. Pretty tough assignment. I invite you to turn to the book of Jonah in our Old Testament this morning, and there we're going to think about another missionary. His story is not quite parallel, that of Johann and David... It is interesting that Jonah, our missionary in our story today, this prodigal prophet, is now at a position in his life that God has made him willing to go to a very, very difficult mission field. It's not really parallel, our story of Johan and David, in that... Johan and David had to get on a ship to go to their mission field. Jonah got on a ship to run away from his mission field. But there we know the story. After the storm, God created the fish. They pitched Jonah over into the sea, the Mediterranean there. And there in the belly of the fish, God gets a hold of Jonah at least to a level where he is willing to be cooperative with the will of God in his life. We're going to find out next week that... Jonah is not driven, as Johan and David were, by compassion for lost souls to carry out the mandate of the gospel. But Jonah is fulfilling and compelled by God in a willingness to go out of duty and obligation. However, he does fulfill, we'll give him credit for that, a very difficult mission. Let's read our text. We're going to begin with verse 10 of chapter 2. You'll recall that chapter 2 is, is David's, uh, excuse me, Jonah's account of what happened when he was in the belly of the great fish. And there he cried out to God, and God did spare his life. There does seem to be a, a void or a lack of repentance on his part. We do know now that he's willing to go. And chapter 2 ends with this, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And so here's where we left Jonah last week. He's on the shore of the Mediterranean, and he's trying to adjust his eyes to the squinting sunlight. We don't know how much time goes on from the end of verse 10 to the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 3. Let's read now chapter 3. He's out on dry land, land, and then verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 6. And the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. And it was this. And how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Hmm. What a remarkable story. It begins with a clearly defined mission, doesn't it? So we can picture Jonah standing up on the shore. We don't know what condition he was in. We don't know where he went. We don't know how much time goes by. What we see clearly, though, in chapter 3, that very much like the call of God in chapter 1, a second time God's call is upon Jonah's life. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And there's his mission, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And it was a clearly defined mission was clearly defined much like in chapter 1 verse 2 in fact let your eyes go over to verse 2 of chapter 1 there when god first called jonah what did he say he said arise go there it is go and go to nineveh that great city and call out against it so it was a clearly defined mission number 1 it was to go and number 2 it was to call out against it not an easy task it was confrontational Secondly, we want to recognize that this mission was very difficult. It was difficult because he had a hard trip ahead of him. It was at least 500 miles to Nineveh. Now, he had already been on a boat trying to go to Tarshish, to flee to Tarshish. He went went down to Joppa to get a ship to Tarshish. Some over 2,000, almost 2,500 miles he was trying to get away when God interrupted his runaway plan with the storm. The fish evidently brought him back. In closer proximity of home, there, he then gets himself sorted out. We don't know if he got sick. We don't know if he had, would have had uh, sores on his body. We don't know what condition he would have been in. Somewhere along the line, God calls him again. He hears the voice of the Lord. Now, we know that Jonah was a man of God. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we have an account where Jonah spoke the word of the Lord. By this time in his life, he is likely a very mature man of God. And so he recovers from this time in the fish, and then he has this difficult trip. He has a hard trip, 500 miles, about one month of travel time. Not only that, Nineveh is a huge city. It's a huge city, probably a minimum of 600,000 people. The reason we get that number of 600,000, a lot of the Bible commentaries use that number, 600,000. Some suggested that it could be up to a million or more people in Nineveh. That makes sense to me that there would be more like a million people there. The number is derived by the closing words of chapter 4, where God and Jonah are having a conversation before the book abruptly ends. And God reminds Jonah that there were in Nineveh 120,000 young people who were not even old enough to know their right hand from their left hand. So if there's 120,000 children, how many teenagers, young adults, adults, and older folks are there. Minimum of 600. You're talking about a big city. Now, this past Wednesday morning, I got my favorite mother-in-law, Mamma in the car, and we headed over to Baltimore. It was Mamma's time for her semiannual kidney check. And in our home, uh, artificial—I mean, um, transplanted kidneys, not artificial kidneys. Transplanted kidneys are common at our house, and we don't think anything of it. And we make the trek down to University of Maryland, Baltimore campus a lot. And we go in there down past the Ravens ball field and the Orioles. I think that's a minor league baseball team. And you go through the Camden, through Camden Yards there. And, um, and you go in down on Redwood and Utah and right, at, right downtown Baltimore. And you know when you're on 6, uh, 695 around Baltimore and looking over the city and you can see, it's a big city. And you know that in 2016, the census showed the count of the city was 614,000 people. So you're looking at a city about the size of Baltimore, a gathering of people at least the size of Baltimore. Now, adding to the fact that he he had a hard trip, a huge city, he had to deal with a harsh people. Now, I have nothing against the people of Baltimore, but I reckon you can find harsh people in Baltimore. They make the news once in a while. You see, humanly speaking, this task at hand that Jonah was obeying God to do, his second calling, heading there, was literally, in, humanly speaking, it would have been suicide. And you just think about this. You think about driving in your car, get down there on 695, pull over on the shoulder, kind of on a high spot, around the city. You've got about 600,000 people in front of you. Get out of your car, spend the next three days calling them out of their sin and towards God and righteousness. I would like to suggest to you that that is an intimidating task. Not easy what God is asking Jonah to do. On top of that, add the fact that Jonah literally hated these people. We're going to talk more about that next week. Again, it comes through. The longing of Jonah's heart would be to see God wipe the Assyrians off the face of the earth. And the equivalent of the kind of people that he thought of them would be the person who maybe maybe raped your wife, burned your house, and murdered your children. That person, that person, that's how Jonah thought about these Assyrians. They were, in fact, a harsh people. They're the kind of people who would take poles and stick it up the rump scut and stand you up in the sand of the desert and let the sun bake you die a slow death on the end of a pole. They were wicked to the core. So he has a long journey. He has a huge city. And he has an incredibly wicked people to deal with. That's the mission. The missionary? Is he like Johann and David Getting word of these pitiful slaves in the West Indy Isles and being willing with a broken heart to go? I don't think so. But we do have a willing servant now, don't we? In fact, God ha- might not have Jonah exactly where he wants him to be, but he-, he has him willing to go, doesn't he? I don't know that Jonah wanted to go, but Jonah's willing to go. Have you ever experienced that in your walk with God? <laughs> Once in a while, God asks you to do something, and you just really don't want to do that. But you do it because you know God wants you to do it. And sometimes you become so miserable by not doing it that you say, I I just have to do this. That's Jonah. I don't know what all was going on in Jonah's mind and heart, but I do know one thing at this point. He wasn't about to risk another three days in the belly of a fish. I don't know if he thought he was going to lose his life. It was very likely that he would have lost his life in this endeavor. Much like Johan and David going to be slaves, they had to know that they were giving away their lives. How about his message? As we read on, we... Are picking up on the message now. And God says at the end of verse two, I want you to call out to it the message that I tell you. Okay, Jonah, you go. I'm going to tell you what to say. So Jonah arose and he went. He's willing to go now. And he goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He is in obedience. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth, 600,000 people. You're looking at these three days. Bible students debate whether this is three days to walk around the outside of it or three days to walk through the middle of it. I just think of it as it takes three days to basically cover the city with his message. That's the point of the passage. It would take him three days of crying out for everybody to get the word. Archaeologists have uncovered Nineveh. You can Google pictures, it's an unbelievable city. One section of it probably had walls about eight miles in circumference. Then there were at least four cities that made up suburbs that all grouped together in a large metropolitan area. It was the capital of the Assyrian people, the Assyrian nation. And so, this exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth, the ESV says, it's this great city, it's large, it's important. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, here's his message. The message is just eight words. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 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 I mean, does the guy just walk around saying that or what? Actually, in the Hebrew, it's only five words. Did Jonah say exactly that? Now we do know verse chapter 1 and verse 2 God says look what he says there Arise go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. We know that he's calling them out for their evil. What was Jonah's message? He just walk around and shout out to them 40 days Forty days is an important number in Scripture. It often has the idea of testing or trial or tribulation. When Noah was on the ark, it rained and the cataclysmic depths of the earth broke open with great volumes of water shaking up the globe. For how long? Forty days. Forty nights. Children of Israel, in their disobedience, wandered in the wilderness. Forty days. Forty nights. Right? Years. Years. I was, my mind had gone to Christ, being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, 40 days. So it's a temp, 40 years, thank you for that, in the wilderness, the Israelites. And so 40 is a significant number. It always has the idea of testing. Is it a literal number? I don't know how else to take it. And so he's warning them. He's warning them that there's judgment coming. It seems to me that at some level, he must have communicated an understanding of who God is and what he expects, because look at what the next words say. Verse 4 again. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. That's Elohim there in the Hebrew the Almighty, All Powerful Creator God. So did Jonah just kind of walk? It says he walked a day's journey, and he walks into the city, and he looks around, and he says, like, is a pretty good spot." Forty days, turn or burn. Get right or get left. You'll figure it out. <laughs> wipe you off the face of the earth he pay a guy a buck to translate for him i mean could he even speak their language what did they know about elohim what was it that they knew what did he say i don't know but he spoke the word that god gave him to say and they understood we know they understood because um let's jump down to the to the miracle with the response the people believed I mean, look what it says in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jump down to verse 8. The king figures out that there's a great revival going on in his country. He's not going to miss out on it. He comes under conviction. And he says in verse 8, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that, it is, his, that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Whatever it was that Jonah said, they got it. Now I think if you break down his message, you have to realize that letter A, back under number Roman number 3, the message, just eight words, the people understood clearly, letter A, that it was a call to repentance. Regardless of the actual words he used... They understood that it was a call to repentance from sin. Now, what does repent from sin mean? If you were to do a word study in your Old Testament, you would find and remember that our Old Testament was written in the book was written in the language of the Hebrews. It was written in Hebrew language. The word that was most commonly translated in Hebrew. To mean repent is a Hebrew word that is spelled S-H-U-B. I don't know how to pronounce it. S-H-U-B. And it means to turn from evil and to turn for good. So to turn from evil and to turn towards the good. So the most commonly translated Hebrew word in the Old Testament where the word repent is used is a word that means to you're heading towards evil or you're living in evil or you are a wicked person and if you repent, you are to turn away from the wickedness and you are to turn to good. So at some level, repentance means to turn away. Turn away from evil to good. If you go to your New Testament and do a word study, the most commonly translated word in the New Testament, which was written in Greek, is a word that sounds something like metanoia. And metanoia... It can be a verb form or a a noun. There's a noun form. It means to change one's mind. Not only to turn away, but the idea is to change your mind or change the way you think about something. So the idea is it's of one changing their life direction. They change their life direction by turning away from sin and all that goes with sin To worshiping and serving God. So it means you're going one direction. It's a wrong direction. It's a direction of wickedness. It's a direction that is against God. And you change your mind about how you're living. And not only do you change your mind, but you change your behavior and you repent of it. You change your mind and your actions and you turn in an opposite direction. Not only do you disagree with the old way, but you now agree with God's way. That's what it means to repent. So, the second thing that his message implies, it certainly implies repentance because he's calling them away from their wickedness. So, it involves the idea of repentance. Secondly, though, it has to be a call to righteous living and self-control. It was a call to righteousness and self-control. You can't turn away from evil and live in a vacuum. You've got to turn to something, and you turn to righteousness, and that includes self-control, or you'll never live a righteous life. Thirdly, certainly implied, and not more than implied in the message, but clearly stated in his message, was a call to recognize that there's coming judgment. There's coming judgment. And I got to thinking about this, and I thought, you know, that message sounds familiar to me. I mean, that message is in the New Testament. There's a little text box on the back of your notes. One is John the Baptist, but the most clear is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 24 and verse 25 is where it states it very clearly. It's it's a really interesting passage. The Apostle Paul is is, in, he's in captive, he's been captive, he's in jail. It's towards the end of his ministry and he's making an appeal that he can go to Rome and and so forth because he's a Roman citizen as well uh, as a Jew and And he ends up getting a hearing in front of the governor. The governor's name was Felix. He's not the cat. He's the governor. (laughs) Felix was basically a secular, self-loving man. And he had, um, in an adulterous way, stolen his brother's wife and so forth. He He was living in adultery. He was out of control. The Apostle Paul gets a chance to stand before the governor to appeal his case that he's being unjustly held in bonds for the gospel of preaching Christ. And it says in Acts chapter 24, verse 25, that he reasoned about this with Felix. So he gets in front of the governor, Felix, and they begin to dialogue. The NIV uses the word that they discoursed. The ESV says that he reasoned with him, and it says in verse 24, uh, verse 25, that he reasoned with them, Paul did with Felix, about righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. There's a pretty good three-point outline to use with people. In righteousness, we repent of our sin. We turn to righteousness, that's self-control. Coming judgment, that's something to be concerned about. So I don't know exactly what Jonah said back to our notes, but I'm telling you, his message implies that somehow the people understood that they had to repent of their sin. They had to turn to righteousness and they had to worry about coming judgment. The judgment was impending, it was near, they didn't have much time. We know that it was going to happen soon, because in chapter 4, Jonah's going to go camp out on the side of a hill. Because he's hoping still that God's going to wipe him off the face of the earth, and that he can sit there and watch the fire burn him up. That's next week. But a miracle happens. The word of God does its work, and the people Repent. You know, the only time people repent is when the Word of God does its work. You can't make somebody repent. Jonah can't make somebody repent of their sin. He just went in there and gave the message, and then God did a mighty work of grace. What was the people's response? First of all, they believed. At verse 5, we've already emphasized that, and the people believed God. They must have known something about Elohim to be able to believe in him. And then they called a fast. And they fasted, and they dressed in sackcloth. That'd be like dressing in burlap sacks. Coarse cloth, taking off your normal, nice clothes, putting on this rough, coarse material, and stopping eating. And they even, the king makes a decree, they don't even feed their animals. Fasting is a sign of brokenness and humility. We don't really exercise it the way they did in the Old Testament or even the New Testament. It was common. Some of you might exercise fasting. It is an interesting topic. The Bible really doesn't explain it very much. It gives examples of people who fasted. But it, it, there isn't really a clear theology of fasting presented in Scripture. What it is is when you become so concerned about something that you don't even want to eat food. You just want to focus on prayer... And supplication before the Lord. And you want to ask him to do a mighty work. And you want to remind yourself of this. And so the people, they believed. It says from the least to the greatest. Or from the greatest to the least. And then it says in verse 6. That the word reached the king of Nineveh. He got up. Left his throne room. Took off his robes. Put on sackcloth. This is the king of the Assyrian nation. Goes out. Finds a cold cooking fire in the palace courtyard, evidently. Moves aside the stones and cook pieces, takes the ashes, rubs them on himself, sits down, throws them up in the air, and lets the ashes fall down on him. And there, he calls out to his noblemen to gather round. and it says that he issued a decree a proclamation and published it through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, verse 7. So he's got all of his right-hand men there, and he says, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Don't feed the animals. Don't feed your kids. We're all going to fast. And it doesn't seem to be manipulated. It seems to be a genuine brokenness, because in the king's response, number one, we see a personal humility, don't we? We see a personal humility. We see him taking off his robes and in a public way, rubbing ashes all over himself. It was a cultural expression, but it was an idea of despair. And look what he says in his proclamation. He, the fast is called for, and then he says, And let them, verse 8, call out mightily to God. With intensity, call out to God, Elohim. Elohim. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. As a people, as a whole, we will turn away from our evil. And as individuals, we will stop the violence that our hands are known for. We will repent of this. We will turn away from this. And we will become a righteous people characterized by self-control. And maybe then, he says, who knows, verse 9, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, a lot of people, they don't think that evangelism is best done in fear of punishment. So a lot of people have changed the gospel message today into more of something that sounds like this. Hey, man, how you doing? You want to you live forever in a mansion? Yeah. Do you know God has a great plan for his life? He'll bless you, man. You just got to give your life to Christ, and he'll bless you. Who doesn't want that? A mansion? You know, a pink Cadillac with purple polka dots and God's blessing? It's great. No, what are you saying? We're going to call out to God, because if we don't call out to God, we're going to die. We're going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And that kind of reminds me of a verse, as a matter of fact. I think you know the verse. For God so loved the world... And he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, Assyrians, Americans, that whosoever believeth in him, uh, say the next word, shall not perish. That means to be wiped off the face of the earth and die in hell forever. Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I want to tell you, I think that fear of the wrath of God is absolutely 100% a fine motive for evangelism. And the Assyrians would agree with me. And they were so thankful when God called it off. And do you know where God calls it off for you? Because, see, you're, you're under condemnation as well. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of those sin is death. And the only way you can call it off is to humble your heart. Now, you might not put on sackcloth and go roll around in an old fire circle. But you got to have humble heart just like the king, just like the people from the greatest to the smallest. They even evidently took scissors and cut the manes off their mules and their horses. They covered them with sackcloth. They wanted their animals to even be an expression before God that we are humbled. We are no longer the proud, arrogant people that we thought we were. We do not have it together. We are nothing but a stench of sin in your nostrils. And that's where you got to be before you can become a child of God. Do you know that? You recognize what your sin means to a holy God and that you are a stench in the nostrils of a holy God. And you run to the cross. You run to the cross. Because at the cross is where we repent and we admit our sinfulness and we receive the finished, completed, substitutionary work of Christ who took our sin upon himself, that we can have his righteousness. And he, he takes our sin and gives us his righteousness and we can then stand justly before a holy God. And we are out from underneath the death sentence of condemnation. Whew. Praise God. And that's where the king of Nineveh led his people. Now, they were looking forward to the cross. The cross wasn't there yet. But in faith, they believed the word of God, and it was counted for righteousness to them. And God relented his wrath. If you're taking notes and you have your pen in your hand, you might write down Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 4 to 10. Jeremiah 18, 4 to 10. See, sometimes people will poke at the book of Jonah they're skeptics and their critics. And this is one, another place in Jonah that they will poke. It's verse 10. Look what it says. And when God saw what they did and that they turned away from their evil way, they re- God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I think the old King James translates it something like where it says he relented, which is a pretty good translation of the Hebrew word there. In the old King James, it used the word, and God repented uses the word repented again. And the idea was, well, how could God change his mind? God, See, God is fickle. You see, we have a bad image of God here, and so they'll be critical of the theology of this text. In Jeremiah chapter 18, it clearly points out where God said, listen, if a city is wicked, and the people are wicked before me, and they will repent, and they will turn away from their sin, then I will withhold the judgment that is coming their way. It's just a way of thinking about God that we can understand and so we see God's mercy we see in the text that God pursues sinful people don't we I don't know why God chose Jonah a second time I don't know why he insisted that Jonah be his man he didn't put him on the shelf he said Jonah you gotta take take two here man you're going and Jonah willingly goes that time I think begrudgingly but willingly and God did his work didn't he Jonah hollers out the message, and God pursues sinful people. And then the people repented because of the message. And we recognize, letter B, that God pardons repentant people. God pardons repentant people. Praise God. So what do we take home today? A couple things real quick before we go. I think maybe mostly to the young people in the audience, maybe some oldsters, I don't want you to use Jonah as a model for someone that exemplifies procrastination for the will of God in your life. Do not use Jonah as a model, young people, that God will pick you up later and use you. And in the meantime, you're going to run or do your own thing. So number one is never assume that there will be a second chance to do what God has already asked you to do. I think, the, I think a wrong takeaway from this passage is, look, Jonah ran, he disobeyed, God still used him. It all worked out great. You know, we don't know why God chose to use Jonah and insisted upon it. He could have easily set him aside. He could have let him drown in the Mediterranean. He could have called a new servant. And so don't ever assume that there's going to be a second chance to accomplish what God has already called you to do. Maybe this week it's time to kick it in gear, huh? Maybe God has been at work in some of our lives in a certain way, at a certain level, and we just aren't getting around to it. But God has clearly put it on your heart. Get with it. Secondly, never take lightly God's deadlines. Never take lightly God's deadlines. The judgment of God is not a trivial thing. It's not something to mess around with. This is a lesson from the Ninevites. They heard about God's deadline, and they reacted. And I think a lot of us, sometimes we hear about deadlines. There's a lot of deadlines in the Bible, by the way. God is a God of second chances, but God is also a God of deadlines. Don't tamper with his deadlines, well, one of them is as simple as what the psalmist wrote in Psalm one thirty nine. All of your days are written in his book before any one of them come to be. You know you have a calendar deadline. You have a calendar deadline. It's going to be like this. Maybe you're going to be in a bed, and your breathing's going to slow down, and they're going to say your blood pressure's dropping, and your pulse is dropping, and. Everybody's going to listen and it's going to go for like a minute without a breath. And then all of a sudden another, oh, they're still there. And then, and then there's no more breaths. That's a deadline. You only give so many breaths and then God has a deadline. And God gives you a chance to experience his forgiveness, his grace, his love, his mercy. On the other hand, just the other day, driving down Daniel Road, somebody decides to drive on my side of the road coming right at me. Makes me very uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, They got it back over. There could have been a deadline. There could have been a deadline. There are deadlines in Scripture of standing before Christ Those are deadlines to take very seriously. Thirdly, never underestimate the power of God's word. I think we take this home with us this week. You know, don't you see in Jonah's evangelism that the most important thing about it was the word of God that he spoke? He didn't have some clever mechanism. You know, sometimes we complicate evangelism, don't we? So let's do this. We're going to start like this neighborhood soccer club and we're going to give out bottles of water and it's going to on the label it's going to have the gospel and they'll take it home and set it on the counter and maybe their dad will read it and he'll get saved maybe i'm not against soccer i'm not against gospel labels on water bottles but maybe we're thinking too hard about the mechanism and we're not just giving out the word it's the word of god that is quick and powerful It's the word of God that is the seed that when it falls on good ground will take root. It doesn't really matter whose hand the seed falls out of. The seed falls on good ground. You can do fair ministry. You can sit in the fair and somebody walks in and and you can tell them about their sinfulness. And you can tell them about the red blood of Christ that flowed. You can tell them how it cleanses you white as the driven snow. And you can tell them that it gives them the promise of heaven. But in the meantime, we want to grow in our sanctification and let the gospel continue its work. You can do that. I don't know how to say it very well. There's a little paper. Read it to them. You can do it. It's it's the word. Stop trying to think so much about the how-to and just give them the word. I might offend them. You might never tell them. Never waste the love and mercy of God. When the Ninevites repented and turned to God, they had an opportunity to experience the love and the mercy of God. They didn't pass up the chance. Now, I suspect that there are people in this room this morning who have been experiencing over and over and over again the love and the mercy of God in his patience as he pursues you, and you waste it all the time. And I want to tell you, don't waste the love and mercy of God. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. You might think you're going to get a spiritual round to it one of these days and live for Jesus like you're supposed to. Will you quit worrying about God out there trying to ruin your good times? He's not. Surrender your heart, repent of your sin, and come to the cross and follow Christ. Don't waste the love and mercy of God today. Today. It's right here just like it was for the Ninevites. Praise God. Praise God. Will you stand with me and bow your head and think a minute? I think that there's some Jonas here today, and I think there's some Ninevites here today. Some of us Jonahs need to obey God and and get about the call of God in our lives and be committed to the Word of God and and get with it. See what God's going to do. Some of the Ninevites here today are maybe you're not willing to repent of your sin. Let the let the nasty Assyrians be your model. They heard about God's deadline. And they immediately humbled their heart before Elohim. They repented of their sin and they turned to righteousness and God held back his hand. Maybe today is a day you get right with God. Maybe you're a a wandering sheep who knows Christ, but it's time for you to come back to the fold. Quit goofing around. Making an idiot of yourself. And maybe you're just a sinner out there on your own, and it's time for God to break your heart. Yield and surrender to Christ. You'll be so glad you did. Your sin forgiven, heaven bound, the work of Christ at work in you, the gospel sanctifying you, changing you, entering into a righteous life of self-control. You'll love it. It won't be easy. Today's the day. I'm going to pray. You can cry out to God right now in your heart and Ask him to save you. I'm going to pray that God will do a work in your life. And then as everyone heads out, I'm going to stand right down here below the pulpit at the communion table. And I'm happy for anyone who wants you to, to come forward and visit with me about your spiritual condition. Come to Christ today if you don't know him. it only take a few minutes to deal with God, to begin to reform and change your thoughts, soften your heart, humble yourself. And so, Father, we thank you for this testimony of these Ninevites, how they heard the word and they acted, how Jonah, though a bit belligerent, is willing to follow through, and and how powerful the word of God was. What a testimony that day, a horrific city that spared itself for 150 more years because of that day of repentance. Father, thank you today that we can repent at the foot of the cross and we can have everlasting life in Christ. Would you bring clarity to those whose minds are confused today? Would you soften hard hearts? Would you open blind eyes, I pray in Jesus' name? Amen.